And again, I'll welcome everybody to the Carolina Bible Group Bible Study Voice Room. Uh, beautiful Sunday morning here. It's a little bit chilly. Uh, it was, it was kind of frosty when we woke up, but not so bad and, and, uh, warming up nicely. It was like 60 here yesterday, so not too bad at all as far as, uh, late January goes. This is a time of year where you can get a, around here at least, where we can get a 60 degree day or a, 15 degree day. It just depends on how the weather uh, decides to take a turn. So, welcome everybody. Today's study will be study number 37 uh, in a series that we're working on here that we've entitled Prayer Through the Dispensations. And uh, the date stamp for today will be 12421, uh, January 24th. I hope your month is going well. It's been a month since Christmas, so. Doesn't seem like it, but boy, time flies. <clears throat> Our purpose in all this, and what we've been doing in this series, is to look at prayer in the scriptures and, and how it's used in different dispensations relative to mankind and our communion with our Creator. It's the, as you've heard me say, prayer is the, the original wireless communication. It's, uh, it's what we use to communicate back with our Creator, and I think He expects it uh, of us, as we have gleaned and learned, uh, at least so far in the dispensations uh, that we've taken a look at, various um, how prayer is used in various times. We've looked at the Old Testament, we've looked at, uh, then we began to look at prayer uh, by the Lord and by those that were around during the time that Christ was alive. And his earthly ministry to his own, uh, the nation of Israel was taking place. And then, of course, he was uh, crucified. He was rejected by his own nation. And uh, further proclaimed, uh, the kingdom was further proclaimed by them that heard him. The apostles that heard the and, and were witnesses of the miracles and the resurrection of Christ. The things that he did in his... And finally, of his resurrection and his ascension, uh, as we read in Acts 1. And they were endued in Acts 2 with the, the power from on high. He Remember, Christ said, greater things you see me do, but you shall do greater things in my name. And I, I totally paraphrased that whole quote. Uh, but you get the gist of what he told them from what I said. And they did do that. Paul... Paul did some things with the power that he was endued with that I never, that you almost never see Christ do. I don't know that Christ uh, himself even could touch a handkerchief and send it. Uh, I'm sure he could. He just never chose that particular avenue uh, to use, whereas Paul could touch a handkerchief and the others could take it to someone who was sick and let them touch the handkerchief and they would be healed. Uh that's almost, uh, I mean, it's beyond mind-blowing when you think about the power that, that was being used there during this dispensation. So Christ was preached by them that heard him, and they were particular aspects of prayer that were being used in the in this, what I call the Acts period dispensation of the kingdom teaching. The kingdom teaching was begun by Christ himself because the king was on the scene and he was, preaching the kingdom, the coming kingdom that had been foretold all down through the Old Testament 
He was preaching that to his own, to the nation of Israel. Because to them were the promises made. To Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons, it was to them that the promises of God were made. And that's what set the nation of Israel apart from all the other nations that were on the earth. And it wasn't until the tenth chapter of the book of Acts that we see Peter opening the door to this same kingdom to the Gentiles, the non-Israeli nations of the earth, and they too could be blessed through Father Abraham, as it's written in Galatians, for plain reading to for anybody to see. They could be blessed through Father Abraham, just like an Israelite. They were grafted in, as Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11. You read, Paul has a really long, lengthy explanation of this whole grafting in process in Romans. 9, 10, and 11. And that all rolled along until you get to the end of the book of Acts. During this Acts period, several books were written by the Apostle Paul. Actually, the first seven books of Paul. I'll try to rattle them off. Hebrews, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Corinthians. Uh, that's, uh, what was that, 5? Then you got Romans, and there's one more, Galatians. Those are the seven books that Paul wrote before Acts 28.28. Those were written uh, during the kingdom dispensation, during the Acts period. Uh, you can almost go back and literally track them down uh, to, a, a, to these visits as you read the book of Acts. You can read where Paul went to Galatia. You can read where Paul went to Thessalonica. You can read where Paul went to Ephesus, where he went to Colossae. I mean, you can read all these... Uh, we read that, well not the Colossae, but you can read all these visits, uh, Corinth I meant to say. You can read where Paul went during the book of Acts and, and know that he wrote these books back to these people. And by what's contained in the book, by the verbiage and the, the hopes that he's referring to and some of the instructions he lays down for these folks, you can garner, hey, this is a, this has to do with the kingdom and it's one of those kingdom books. Now, so far, that's all. That's what we've been looking at with our review of the Acts period and the Acts period books. We've already been through Corinthians and some of the others. And today, uh, last week, we went through First Thessalonians, which also is a kingdom book. Today, we're going to look at a couple of usages in Second Thessalonians. Now, Second Thessalonians, uh, as the notes say, was written back to the Thessalonians shortly after the first book was written, after the first epistle to the, the Thessalonians was written. So not a lot of time lag between the two. So uh, let me catch up here. Last week, we tracked prayer in the Acts period, kingdom dispensation to the epistles to the Thessalonians, noting the usages in First Thessalonians chapter 1 and 3. Uh, so for today's study, I want to, I want to finish up our look into the Thessalonian epistles and the usages of prayer in them by looking at the the two occurrences in Second Thessalonians, and those are going to be in chapter one and chapter three. So turn with me if you would this morning. If you have a companion Bible, I want to read you the introductory notes. I think a lot of times as we get into these studies and we start looking at these various epistles that we cheat ourselves out of a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding of the book we're looking at 
by not looking at the introductory notes in the companion Bible that go along with these various uh, epistles as we read them. And I don't want to do that anymore. As we get into a new one, I'd like to at least read these intro notes because I think they're important, number one. Number two, I think they'll help you. And these this morning with uh, the book of Second Thessalonians certainly helped me. It says, uh, read with me, this, the second epistle to the church of the Thessalonians was, like the first, written from Corinth, and at no long interval after the, the earlier letter, both Silas and Timothy uh, being still with the apostle. And see, it's those kind of notes that make you think, oh, that's a, that's a good, that's a good observation. That Paul had the same people with him when he wrote the second epistle as he did when he wrote the first epistle. So that gives you some idea, well, these probably weren't written very far apart because of the, the situation with Paul of who's around him, where he's at, and all these things hasn't changed very much. So pretty good note. Um, it goes on to say, apparently, it was called forth and sent in order to repair for its recipients and for us too the mischief caused by false teachings. And that's that's what Paul was always up against all during the Acts period dispensation. And that's pretty much what we're up against in our dispensation today is false teachings. Some uh, Some intentional, some not so intentional. So it works both ways. It goes on to say, in the new revelation made here by the Holy Spirit through Paul concerning things to come, as promised in John 16:13, gives important details connected with the coming of our Lord and of the day of the Lord. So immediately we see that the scope of the hope, always look for a book within any book that's written. What is the scope of the hope? The scope of the hope will either be the kingdom, or the scope of the hope will be the church, or the scope of the hope will be whatever was going on in the Old Testament. You see what I mean? you got to look and make sure that you know for any book you're looking at, to rightly divide it, you got to know what is the scope of the hope. And the scope of the hope here is the day of the Lord, the prophesied day that's mentioned so often in the Old Testament, the great and terrible day of the Lord, the day of his return that was promised in Acts chapter 1 when he ascended. The angels that stood by him, and we'll, we'll go back and read that today. The angels that stood by said, marvel not that he's ascended because he's coming back in like manner as you've seen him go. He's not going to stay gone. There is a reason for his return. And that was the, that was the subject of Old Testament prophecy, go back and read it. The great and terrible day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord will be as this, as Joel says, and, and, uh, I think, uh, maybe Malachi and many of the other, many of the other Old Testament writers, the Old Testament prophets. So it goes on to say in the introductory notes for Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Paul reminded the Thessalonians in chapter 2 verse 5 that he had told them these things, Yet some part, at least, uh, had taken up the belief that the day had already set in, as he says in 2.2, and the notes associated with chapter 2, verse 2. So some were thinking, as Peter says, where's the promise of his coming? That day's passed already. Or has he come and we missed it or whatever. See, there was, 
there was some confusion. It says, hence the apostles' warning that that day would not come unless the falling away came first, a warning much needed in these days when it is uh, widely taught that the day of the Lord will not come until the world is converted to Christ. And this is even back when uh, these things are being taught even back when Welch wrote this. Part 2. The important prophecy regarding the man of sin, the um, and we won't get into this uh, because it's not where our prayer occurrences take place. Uh, so the important prophecy regarding the man of sin or the man of lawlessness has been the subject of many divergent interpretations. And uh, I urge you all to go and check out what Paul says about uh, the man of sin that's to come in uh, in Second Thessalonians. I believe it's in chapter 2. It said, with regard to its main features, no, in- no interpretation is needed. Uh, he says, for we have here a careful statement in plain terms of events that were then in the future and which not having yet taken place are still future. And I'm, I'm in agreement that they still haven't taken place. I believe when these prophesied the man of sin gets here, I don't believe you're going to have a whole lot of problem realizing that that's who he is. Because he'll be all over the TV. The prophecy is given in such language that the simplest reader may understand. There is yet to appear an individual who will be the very incarnation, listen to this, of all evil, of whom past opposers of God and of his Christ were but faint types. There is one coming. That's why I say when he arrives, you won't have a whole lot of doubt about what's happening. There's one coming that makes all the other uh, feigners of Christ, those who pretend to be Christ or have power, lucky Hitlers, they'll all fade in the they'll fade in the backlight because they just can't hold the they won't hold the, the evil that this person is going to hold. I don't believe you'll I don't believe anybody will have any trouble recognizing him or knowing who he is when he arrives on the scene. I'll just say that. Him will the Lord destroy with the brightness of his coming. It may be added that all the early fathers believed that this great opposer would be an individual. So, and he could very well likely still be an individual, or he could be, um, he could be some other means of opposing and, and standing against God and, and Christ. So, some things to think about there. That's why I say these introductory notes to these books. I tell you, after reading that, it makes you want to go read the whole book of Second Thessalonians, which is only like three chapters long. So, you know, it's, that's the kind of stuff that, that I think you miss if you skip over that, and I'm glad we didn't today. So let's read, uh, let's move on to our, our prayer usages this morning. Turn with me, if you would, Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Chapter 1 only has 12 verses, so I'm going to read all 12 verses. Uh, but I want you to note the word pray. Our usage is uh, prosuchomites, the verb, uh, and it's used in verse 11. So we're only going to read 12 verses. But I want you to, to get the gist of what, what Paul's writing here in this second epistle to these Thessalonian believers. Here as uh, we go through it, I want you to get the context of what he's saying. So he says, Paul... Second Thessalonians one one. 
Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus under the assembly, the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul still reiterates the standing of these people and their hearts within the, the, the Father and the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He mentions both. He says, Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you think it's important that he mention both? Isn't God one? Well, yeah. But God is also three, is he not? If he weren't, there would be no need for Paul to say the Father and the Son. And see, he doesn't mention the Spirit because the Spirit never draws attention to itself. And so the apostles never give the Spirit any attention because guess what? The Spirit is telling them what to say. So the Spirit stays quietly in the background. That hit me as I read this. That the Spirit stays quietly in the background instructing them what to say. But he never tells them to mention him. The Spirit don't. Not only instructing them what to say, but in, <clears throat> many times guiding him in where, to, where go, to go. Where to go, what to do. Yeah, yeah. everything. That's, that, that hit me. As I read this, because you'll see a lot of Paul's letters do that. Greetings from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, his son. That's amazing. He said, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is me. And I'm sure that as he did that, he did it with a barrage of endless prayers. Thanking God for the Thessalonians. He says, because... That your faith groweth exceedingly. You see that? The Thessalonians were growing and growing and growing in their faith. Your faith groweth exceedingly. And the charity or the love of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth. As a, as a group in Christ should be. Even today in this dispensation, our, our group should abound in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This admonition has not changed. It may have some different aspects about it in this dispensation. But our group today is still admonished to love one another as Christ loved you. That's, that's one of our main, you know, the whole joints and bands and being knit together. That's what that's all about. So it says in verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you, Paul says. You are my glory. We glory in you in the assemblies of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. See, they weren't just doing it because it was easy. They were doing it under persecutions and tribulations. Well, go back and read Paul's little trip through Thessalonica. He was literally run out of there. That was a tough crowd in Thessalonica. How was that, Acts 16, 17, somewhere along in there? Go back and read it. They drove him out of town. He went through Derby and Lystra, and then they come from Thessalonica and found him and stoned him. So these people are still there in the middle of all that. Think about that. They had to endure that when after Paul was gone. And he says, yet we're just amazed at your faith. And your faith grows and abounds 
even through persecutions and tribulations. Boy, how many of us can keep our faith through persecutions and tribulations? But they, they were doing it. Paul's witness here is that that's exactly what they were doing. And I'm, I'm going through all this so you get the context of what's happening here in, in 2 Thessalonians. Paul says, which is a manifest token or a, an unveiled something that's manifested as something that's made known. It's a known token of the righteous judgment of God. See, this is the judgment that Peter warned about in Acts 2. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the face of the Lord. That's what they were moving toward. When we read what Paul is promising, what's coming, what Paul is foretelling in Second Thessalonians, you're looking at exactly what Peter said was going to happen in Acts 2. Same hope. Same prophecy. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the face of the Lord. But until the time come when he returned and your sins could possibly be blotted out, you were to keep the faith and you were to walk the walk. And that's what we're going to see next. During this dispensation, it was there was a lot of works wound into this dispensation, y'all. And if the works didn't stand the test in the day, they would be burned up like wood, stay in, wood hay, and stubble. If I can say that right. Yeah, the, the test was on. The test was coming. It wasn't here yet, but they were working toward the test as Paul wrote this letter back to them. That's what I want you to understand. You can't ignore And Tony, thank you for... I'm just pulling these from memory, but it's good when Tony can find them and actually show you what Peter said. Um from the scripture so it said which is a shown or a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that's the same judgment that was coming that ye may be counted worthy see maybe you don't say you are counted worthy there's coming a time when the judgment the righteous judgment is going to be done by the righteous judge and you may or may not be worthy of that kingdom do you see that that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God here, the the term kingdom of God is all inclusive for everything God is ever going to do, including the church, the body of Christ. But when it says it in the context of Thessalonians, it means the kingdom of God basically that has been revealed up to this point. And that the only one that they had ever known up to this point was the coming. The parousia, well, the personal presence of the Lord and the, the, the heavenly city coming down from God out of heaven as their hope. That's what they were suffering, uh, some of the suffering. That's what they were going through the tribulations and the persecutions for. That was the goal to which they were working. That was the scope of the hope, so to say. Hopefully everybody understands that. Not that hard. You just got to keep in your mind what the goal, what is the goal for these people? What are they doing this for? Because it's tough. It's kicking against the pricks. It's fighting against the unbelievers. And boy, the unbelievers in these times, they took it to heart. They would kill you with rocks if they thought you needed it. So it was tough life, tough sledding. 
He says, seeing it in verse 6, seeing it is a righteous thing with God. <coughs> Listen to this. It is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance doesn't belong to the one who is wronged. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's his. And so Paul said, he reiterates that, seeing it is a righteous thing. When God recompense, recompenses them that afflict you, that's a righteous thing because God has judged it in his righteousness and deemed that it's necessary and just. So his recompense is me. Ours? Not so much. We're not supposed to have the recompense. That's God's. See, you literally rob God of that when you get revenge. You rob him of his vengeance. So he says, and that's a righteous thing, Paul says. You ever thought about vengeance being a righteous thing? Well, if the righteous creator meads out vengeance, then logically the mathematical equation of that, if a righteous creator meads out vengeance, guess what? He can't do anything but righteousness. So the vengeance is righteous. Makes sense to me. Makes sense to y'all. Mm -hmm. So he says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that afflict you or trouble you, and to you who are troubled or afflicted, rest with us when the Lord Jesus, listen to this, shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Paul did not say when you appear in the heavenly places as part of his body here. That ain't the scope of the hope, y'all. Paul does not know anything of the church, the body of Christ at this point. At this point in his life and in his ministry, the church, the body of Christ, is still hidden in God. It has never been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, as it was to Paul in, when he wrote Ephesians and Colossians. Different hope, different scope. Remember that, scope of the hope. The scope of the hope here is the coming. And Lord is going to come with his mighty angels or the angels of his power, as it were. And his saints. Well, I think saints in that, in that text is literally angels, if you go back and look at it. I don't think he's bringing any saints with him because no man hath ascended into heaven. Those are yeah, well, I think that translation where it says saints, might as well go back and look at that, because I think it's referring to the angels. Because that's what the angels always said he would come with. Come with me to Acts chapter 1, and I want, I want to read you what was promised. Acts chapter 1. Here's what the angels said would happen. And that's in uh, verses 7 through 12, and we'll do it quickly. Acts 1, 7 says, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. Now, he's gathered with all the apostles. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, listen to this. 
when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Can you imagine him just start rising off the floor like a balloon? You ever let a, a helium balloon go outside? We used to do it and shoot at it with a BB gun. That's how he rose up. But he kept going and going and going, went right through the clouds, was received up into a cloud. And taken up in a cloud, received him out of their sight, it says in verse 9. It says, and while they looked steadfast, I bet they did. I would have. I'd have been standing there with my jaw open. Holy cow, look at this. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, these are, uh, these are aner is the word. These men are angelic men. Stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? What are you looking at? This same, listen to this. Here's the promise. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Now, a lot of people want to take a lot of liberties with their death and say, well, I'm going to do the same thing the Lord did. I'm just going to rise right straight into heaven in blatant disregard of John 3.13 and other scriptures that make it very plain that no man hath ascended into heaven. Yet we put them there. Uh, Dale Earnhardt, I think, is, is running the race today in heaven. He's driving his race car there. I've heard that on the radio. I mean, it, it's amazing what people believe. And that's exactly what Paul was fighting against for these Thessalonians were people that just made stuff up that had absolutely no godly backing whatsoever. See, see what I'm saying? They said, this same Jesus will come. The one you've seen ascend, he's going to come in like manner as you've seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. So there you have it. He's going to come in like manner as you see him go. Well, that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in verse 7. He said, And to you who are troubled, back in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his angels, with the angels of his, of his power. He's going to come again just like it was promised. Verse 8. In flaming fire. So it's not going to be hard to miss. <laughs> or it's going to be hard to miss. It's going to be hard to miss him if he's coming in flaming fire. How would you like to look up into the sky? Just stop for just a second and imagine this. Imagine you're looking up into the sky and here comes the Lord Jesus in flaming fire. There your jaw is going to drop. Wouldn't you think? I think mine would. Taking vengeance. Whoa. As he comes, the vengeance is being meted out. And it's righteous vengeance. Remember? God doing it. If Christ is doing the vengeance, as the one appointed to do all the judging, guess what? It's all righteous vengeance. Taking vengeance on them that know not God 
and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and get this, y'all. As Paul was writing this, as he mentioned in the first epistle, he literally thinks that he is going to be alive and remain and be walking on the earth when this event takes place. Because he's already in one of his, uh, in, I think it's First Thessalonians 4, he says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. What? You're going to be alive for this, Paul? Well, he thought he was. Because guess what? He don't know that this dispensation is going to end in rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ by his own people. We don't want him, Paul, in Acts 28. They gave him a day. He preached Christ out of them, uh, to them from the law and the prophets that said from morning to night. Some believe, some believe not. But as a whole, the nation of Israel said, nope, not our, not our Savior. And they missed the day of their visitation. Verse 9. Well, it says in, in verse 8, In flame and fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Not everlasting punishing, everlasting destruction. You see that? Everlasting is probably to the age of the ages. I looked it up. I didn't look it up. You look it up. Prove what that, look and see what that age, what that word everlasting there means because that's one of those words that ought to pop up an emergency in your brain when you see it is everlasting. Because boy is it misused in the English as you go through the scripture. So there's going to be some everlasting destruction and punishment. They'll be punished. The punishment is everlasting destruction. The punishment is not everlasting punishing, as some would say. And I've been I've been talking with Nick. Uh, he's been looking at my hell study or listening to the hell study uh, that I did that I think we have posted on the website. And that's you know where people get this everlasting punishing thing. So it says in verse 10, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed. In that day. You see that? When he shall come to be glorified in his saints. And to be admired in all them that believe in that day. If you leave out the little parenthetical insertion in there. So it all takes place y'all. At that day. The day that Peter spoke of in Acts 3. When the times of refreshing shall come. Well, if, this, if getting rid of the, the dregs is not a refreshing time, I don't know what is. The earth is going to be refreshed. Because them that disbelieve in this day, they're not going to last very long. And you can't run and you can't hide. There's nowhere to hide from the righteous judgment. So here's our verse in verse 11 here. 
because of everything Paul's already said, he says, wherefore, or on account of this, literally, also, we pray always for you. Why? Because there were many that were trying to preach the false doctrine. These Thessalonians, they had a hard time kicking against the goads. These are the same people that chased Paul out of Thessalonica, I believe, into Derby and Lystra, and stoned him when they caught up with him. These people had to live with that. They were still there. So he says, Wherefore also we pray always for you. If anybody knows what can happen to these people, that's the Apostle Paul. He said that our God would count you worthy of this calling that he would possibly count you worthy of this calling. You see that? There's always in this kingdom dispensation a possibility of it not happening if you read between the lines and look at exactly what these apostles say. They all point to a time when it would all be decided. At the point he writes here, it's not decided. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. They're working toward the decision day. And they have a walk to perform between here and the decision day when the righteous judge would take over and make the final call. It's not that hard. So it says, Wherefore, also we pray always for you, prosukamai, that's the verb, praying for them, always, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. God would bless them to be able to do this. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. That's what it was all about. That the name of Christ through these Thessalonian believers would be glorified in them and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's amazing how to me how plain that is. It's not, I agree with, with what Welch wrote up front. This book is not difficult to understand at all. If you just leave it dispensationally where God put it and understand the scope of the hope. If you understand the scope of the hope, it's not that hard to follow. Turn with me to... Uh, and I'm about done here. Second Thessalonians 3, uh, there's 18 verses of 3 in chapter 3. And I want to read all 18. And our, our, our word, uh, our word amazingly is in the first verse. So I could read one verse, but I don't think you're really going to get the... Now, he's going to talk about the Lord's Day and this man of sin that comes in chapter 2. So you're going to want to go back and read that when I get done with the study today. Because it's interesting. This one that's going to come that's going to make all the false gods of the past pale in comparison. The man of sin, Paul calls him. So don't skip chapter 2, but for time's sake today, and to stay focused on our prayer study, I'll have to do it. So I want to read chapter 3 because it's relevant to what, and so is 2. But I'm mainly interested in uh, mainly interested in chapter three here. So 
Paul says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. So he's, what's he praying for here? And pray here again. It's prosukamai. It's the verb. Pray for us. Or, yeah, he's, not only is he praying for the Thessalonians, but he says to the Thessalonians, I need you people to pray for us. That's him and Sylvanus and, and Timothy. Pray for us that the word of, and here's the specifics of his request, that the word of the Lord may have free course. Don't pray for me that I won't be injured. Don't pray for me that I won't be hungry. Don't pray for me that I won't suffer some pain. What does he want them to pray for? That what they say will have free course or be understood or be able to be freely preached and be glorified, he said, among all the others, even as it is with the group in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica. Of all the things he he could have possibly prayed for here, the biggest one he wants is that the word would have free course and be, and be glorified. What about that? That our preaching will be glorified. And I want to read the rest of the chapter just so you've got the context to go with the reason of his prayer. He says, And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. See, the reasonable, the unreasonable and wicked men hampered uh, what was being prayed for in verse 1. So they're kind of hooked together. Paul is praying or asking them to pray that God would make the word go out of free course and to remove the stumbling blocks that keep it from doing so, which are the unreasonable and wicked men, the unbelievers. For all men, he said, don't have faith in God, and faith there is in God. Most men have faith in something, but not all have faith in God. He said, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from all evil. God had the power to do that. He said in verse 4, and we have confidence in the Lord touching you, or concerning you, that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. He said, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. What? You mean we got to wait for him? Yep. And not only did they have to wait for him until the coming of the Lord from the, the heavens, they had to do it with patience. And not only did they have to do it with patience, but they had to do it while they were further spreading the word of God. And putting up with the persecutions and the trials and the tribulations that all went along with it. What about that? Patiently waiting for Christ. But the good news is Paul believed that he would be alive and remain. That within his lifetime it was going to take place. He believed he could fix it. He said, now we command you, brethren, verse 6, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother, listen, that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. There were some that weren't going by the rules, evidently, even in in Thessalonica. I cannot never get that right. Thessalonica. He said, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us. He said, you, you got the, you know the rules. You know the walk, the work that is required. You know how to do it. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. All of a sudden we're there. We didn't act up or behave disorderly. And that could probably have a lot of different definitions. He said, neither did we eat any man's bread for nothing. But we wrought with labor and travail night and day. They worked. They worked their way. Paid their own way. Worked for it. In addition to spreading the gospel. What about that? that we might not be chargeable to any of you, so that nobody could say, well, they just came in here, <clears throat> laid around, talked a little bit, and freeloaded, and then they took off. Uh-uh. See, that's not becoming of what his message was. He wrought with his own hands when he had the opportunity. Right in there with the working man. He was just as good, or just as much a worker as any other working man. He calls not, he said, not because we have not power, but he said, listen to this, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us, do what we do. We were trying to be the example, Paul says. He says, for even when we were with you, this we commanded you that if any would not work, <laughs> neither should he eat. Boy, that wouldn't go far today. Mm-mm. We got so many giveaway government programs that half the people in this country don't have to work or don't want to work or choose not to work. And in a lot of cases, we encourage them not to work. Because you you can make more on unemployment than you can working. So where's the, where's the biblical, uh, where's the biblical knowledge in that? It doesn't make any sense. He said, for we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. See, they're even within, as much as Paul bragged on the, the church at Thessalonica, what does he say here? We hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. They had their bad boys. Working not at all, but are busybodies. They're just, they look like they're working maybe, but they're not really doing a whole lot other than just being a busybody. Could be men, could be women, I don't know. Could be both. I don't know. He said, now them that are such, listen to this. I mean, you didn't have to wonder how Paul felt about certain things within the church. You didn't have to stand around and scratch your head about where he's going to fall down as uh, on which side of how to go with these things. Because he's going to tell you pretty quick. And here he does. He said, now them that are such, 
we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, not by our own words or by our own permission, but we're saying this by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. You see that? Now, there were provisions made for them who physically could not work, even within the assemblies, I believe. But for the ones that could work and didn't, just because you didn't feel like it, or you thought you were above that, or you were just flat out lazy, Paul didn't have a lot of patience with that. He said, but ye brethren... Be not weary in well-doing. Do good things without ever getting tired of it. Hard to do, ain't it? Don't ever get tired of well, well-doing, he says. He says, and if any man obey not our word by this epistle. Now listen to this. This epistle has some rules that go with it. This dispensation had some rules that went with it. If you don't believe it, check them out here. Here we go. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note, make a note of that man, Paul says, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Wow. Wasn't supposed to be around him or, or have a whole lot to do with him. You see that? He said, yet not Yet count him not as an enemy. You're not supposed to judge and make an enemy out of him. But admonish him as a brother. Admonish him to bring him back in line. Make him think about what he's doing. Assist in bringing him back into the godly walk. Because why? If he's not walking and the Lord appears or comes, he may not be in the flock. That's a tough. That the Lord may. That's a tough thing. For that the Lord may forgive the sins when the times of refreshing shall come from the face of the Lord. That's pretty tough, ain't it? You well, you kind of ostracize this guy until he comes back in line. Well, that has to be done with a with a with a certain love with a degree of love exactly that's why he said don't don't look at him as an enemy you were you're supposed to look at him as somebody that needs help somebody that I've got to reach out now and and quietly and calmly figure out a way to explain to him what he's doing wrong and what he needs to do to be brought back around that's what Paul's basically saying he's saying kind of saying separating to make him see his yeah, Wrong. that if you're going to be part of this assembly, there are some standards that we have. If you don't have standards, you don't have an assembly. It's the same thing as with a country. If you got a country and it don't have borders, you don't have a country. You've just got a spot on the world somewhere. It's no different. So he says, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And admonition is correcting. He said, Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. He says, The salutation of Paul with mine own hand. 
which is the token in every epistle, so I write. So the token of Paul's in every epistle is that he wrote it with his own hand, he said. And he mentioned there was one other book, I think, where he said, you see how large a letter uh, or large letters I have written in my own hand. He says, so I write. The grace, verse 18, and we'll close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And we will stop there for today. Hopefully you got a little bit out of this and uh, that you were able to glean. Go back and read Second uh, Thessalonians 2. I think you'll find that man of sin pretty interesting. And uh, hopefully it's uh, wet your curiosity already as to, to kind of what's uh, going on there. Things to watch for. Uh, that man is going to arrive on the scene b- b- before the coming of the Lord uh, because he is destroyed with the brightness of the Lord's coming. And he will undoubtedly have uh, a government set up, probably, and a rule over people. And he will have great power, lying wonders, all these things. Things to uh, wonder about and things to check out. So that's what's so amazing about the the word is it has so many aspects like that. So bow with us and uh, we'll close. Father, we do thank you again for this, this wonderful word of yours, God, and for that which we read today and the gleaning of the understanding we have, Father, from rightly dividing it. We thank you for the clearness and the, the conciseness of the Apostle Paul as led by the Spirit to write. And we thank you for those words that we read and that we're able to understand according to the leadership of your Spirit. Father, thank you so much for Christ and for his blood and for what it buys us and the scope of our hope and our dispensation and the the blessed hope that we look toward as members of his body in the heavenly places. Thank you so much for all the blessings that we've received on this earth, in our flesh, over the past weeks, Father, for bringing folks around out of sickness and for all the things, Father, that we just see worked out Behind the scenes, Father, thank you for taking care of Dorothea, getting her settled, uh, for the healing of all, uh, all those that we have mentioned. Father, we're so thankful in all things today for these things. For it's in Christ's name we do and we pray. Amen.